Apple's App Store was pretty cool when it launched nearly 13 years ago, in July 2008. All of a sudden, iPhone owners could download apps by the New York Times or eBay, or they could download games like Crash Bandicoot. The App Store became a really big deal when app developers built apps like Uber or Instagram, which took advantage of the cameras or GPS built into iPhones. But just like many near teenagers, Apple's App Store is starting to get into trouble. Sure, developers have made billions of dollars off of it over the years, but Apple's innocence is gone. This is the Informations 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. On this week's episode, Apple is on trial. It was sued last fall by Epic Games, which says that Apple's App Store is a monopoly. The iPhone maker faces an upcoming three-week trial in a U.S. district court, which begins May 3rd in Oakland. The Information's Josh Sisko will be covering the trial, and he'll give us the rundown on the case, the backstory, and why Apple is likely to win. Then, venture capitalists have for years been pouring money into food delivery startups. So why does a startup from Philadelphia with a funny name like GoPuff think it's reinventing delivery and urban logistics? I'll speak with the information senior editor, Wendy Pollack, about reporting that I did about GoPuff. It's been a very secretive company over the years, kind of under the radar, but I got under the hood and got to look at its numbers. GoPuff just might be for real, if it can overcome technology, branding, and labor challenges. But first, let's get to Josh and the Apple trial. Apple's trial against Epic, the maker of Fortnite, is the first key U.S. courtroom test of the backlash against big tech. It will showcase the wildly profitable but souring relationship between Apple and some key mobile software developers. Josh Sisko has been covering this trial for the information, and he joins me now. Hey, Josh. Hey, Corey. We, we don't always get to break down fun courtroom battles uh, at the information, but today we do. And this is a fun one. Let's start with, with sort of the why is this happening? Uh, why is the App Store under legal scrutiny next week? Well, essentially because of its size. Apple's App Store, along with Google's App Store, Google Play, are the two primary means of getting software apps on your mobile phone and apple's app store is wildly popular it's sort of the two companies are are a duopoly and they wield tremendous control over developers and there's been an increasing pushback from the developer market against both apple and google Uh, this particular trial just involves apple but there's been a tremendous pushback against both because of what developers perceive as onerous terms that they have to abide by in order to get their software onto phones. All right, so let's talk about some of those onerous terms. And the plaintiff in this case is Epic Games. Who is Epic? And are they kind of alone out there making, you know, a case against Apple? Do they, you know, do they have anyone in their corner? What's what's that side all about? What do they say? So Epic is is known mostly for Fortnite, a uh, video game, a multiplayer video game that's been wildly popular over the last several years. Uh, they have been pushing back against Apple for for some time. It, it uh, came to a crescendo last August with this lawsuit. Uh, they're definitely not alone. 
numerous other companies, you know, big ones uh, such as Spotify, Match. Um, there's a company called Tile. Many other companies um, have also started pushing back against Apple um, and and the control they wield over over the app stores. And it essentially amounts to two main issues. One is Apple forces developers for to use their payment system for any purchase that is made within an app, and they take thirty. Apple takes a thirty percent cut, and the developers say that they have no other choice if they want Apple's payment system. And you know, if there's if there were other payment systems, PayPal, Square, or anything else, that would lower the commissions to a more competitive uh, market rate rather than. Apple unilaterally setting the price. So what are these developers seeking? What are they hoping, and Epic in particular, what are they hoping is the outcome of this trial? Epic and other developers are hoping that essentially the App Store gets cracked open, that other payment providers are able to to process in-app payments that would bring the, the 30% commission down and they want to be able to sell software onto the onto iPhones outside of the App Store. They want a, th- uh, a third-party App Store, which Apple has has steadfastly refused to to budge on either additional App Stores or alternative payment systems. And what argument do you expect Apple to make um, about why a third-party App Store could be? bad or could be bad for consumers could be you know what what is what is their argument of why they should have a a kind of moat like this that the why is the app store good <laughs> in their mind apple first off says that you know the product that they've created has created tremendous value for everybody involved and and that's not wrong i mean people you know the apple itself and developers have made billions and billions of dollars apple says that it needs to have control over over software over what third party software is is downloaded onto phones they say it's a security reason that they are able to curate this experience that only offers high quality apps and it's free of malware it's free of other bad actors and wrapped up in that is its payment system they say that this is this is their product and they've created value and they should be able to be compensated for that value so you've written a little bit about Apple's history around sort of issues of competition. Has Apple faced antitrust issues from the beginning of the App Store? Like, like take us back a little bit. Yeah, there's been complaints uh, it, to some degree since it started. They've been enmeshed in uh, class action litigation that's making some of the same arguments that Epic and other developers are making. Those cases have been brought by actual actually been brought by consumers by people who purchase the apps who say that those commissions that apple charges have any competitively unnecessarily inflated the cost of apps that if apple didn't charge 30 percent developers would be able to lower their prices and so they were overcharged that litigation is ongoing i think there's been kind of a steady stream of complaints from developers probably some of them uh baseless but others maybe with more validity Whenever a developer gets kicked out of the app store, they're always, you know, they're not pleased. And I think there's, you know, over time, there's been a a push to sort of call that anti-competitive, regardless of whether Apple has a a valid justification or not. Um, 
They've been in under antitrust scrutiny for a number of other issues as well. There was an, a trial against ebook price fixing that involved them and, and a number of book publishers. So they're no stranger to these issues. You have this broader tech lash happening in the background here. And, you know, I think mostly you see Google, Facebook, Amazon in the crosshairs, in the media crosshairs, in legal crosshairs. And this is really, seems really high stakes for Apple. Like, should they have been able to see this coming? Like, should they have been able to uh, avoid a major trial like this? I think that there's some degree of that. I mean, I think as long as they've had the iPhone and the App Store, they've leaned very heavily on this idea that is entirely correct, that they've created this massively innovative, massively profitable, popular products, and people should pay the the price for those. I think what may have ended up happening is that they sort of focused a little bit too much on that and not enough on the enormous power they had over What's essentially, for a lot of people, the internet. More and more, the internet is mobile, and your phone is your often your primary gateway to the internet, and Apple is the only gateway uh, for a software company to get onto the iPhone. So they've developed this massive power over developers that I think this like, innovation, this definitive like success story has sort of maybe clouded them a little bit on, and they didn't quite weren't willing. I don't know. I mean, it's subjective, right? But I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, they do have these valid innovation arguments, but... But they could have lowered, you know, lowered their take rate and, you know, they've kind of, they seem to have uh, still played offense a little bit over the years, even as they have faced more for scrutiny. Is that is that fair? I think that's fair. I think that when when a company gets that dominant, it's hard, you know, you're going to face pushback. And I think, you know, you always want to have a dialogue with your customers. I mean, and that's like, you know, in this case, that would be the developers or maybe you're more like a business partner, but you want to keep your, you want to keep your customers and your business partners happy. Right. And you wrote a, I thought, a really sharp piece last week Basically saying that Apple is likely to win this this case, that Epic has a bit of an uphill battle to climb in order to win. Why is that? And what are you going to be listening for? Currently, you know, antitrust law in the U.S. gives Apple a bit of an advantage. Um, they, Epic is saying that basically that Apple has monopolized its own product and there is case law that, so that says in narrow circumstances that's a problem and you have to you have to have a fact pattern that fits into that into those precedents but it's it's narrow and it's going to be difficult to make the argument that apple can't monopolize its own product um, apple is going to very quickly point to you know google for example that there are not only are there other ways to download software, you know, on your computer and for games on a Sony PlayStation and a Nintendo, but there's also other mobile phones that aren't Apple. So I think that argument is going to be tough. What happens if Apple loses? You know, does this open the door for more antitrust lawsuits? And what does it mean for, for what Apple faces on at the federal level um, as, as they are investigated by the DOJ? 
if Apple loses, it's going to embolden not just other developers to attack Apple, but it's going to embolden, I think, com opponents of large tech companies sort of writ large to go on the attack. I think it's going to be seen as, as a victory for the little guy, even though Epic doesn't really fit the definition of a little guy. They are a, wi a large, wildly profitable company as well. But I think it's going to definitely embolden uh, tech critics. And, you know, you mentioned Apple is under investigation at the Justice Department. Also in Europe, it's going to just give an added boost to those cases as well. Fascinating. Um, well, this is going to be a really interesting case to watch over the next few weeks. I'm glad you're you're going to be in Oakland at least a few of the days uh, at the trial, uh, taking notes, telling us what's going down inside the courtroom. Uh, thanks so much for, for all the diligent work you're doing on this case, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. For a long time, GoPuff was known, fairly or not, as the service college kids called when they had late-night munchies. GoPuff built its business by delivering convenience store-type items to your door in 30 minutes or less. The company saw phenomenal growth during the pandemic. I'm Wendy Pollack, senior editor at The Information, and I'm here with Corey, who reported this week about GoPuff's breathtaking rise and found out some inside info about how the company expects to be doing in the years ahead. Corey, in your story this week, you revealed that GoPuff tripled revenue during the pandemic when everyone was stuck at home and getting things delivered. But what I found really remarkable is that the company, instead of expecting that things might slow down as the pandemic ebbs, is projecting a wild pace of growth again this year. How's that possible? Hey, Wendy. So GoPuff's growth is incumbent upon it opening as many warehouses as it possibly can. So the way to understand GoPuff is that it's different than other delivery platforms like Uber Eats, DoorDash, Instacart. Those, those services basically have delivery workers that go around to restaurants or grocery stores to deliver food. GoPuff opens its own warehouses. It controls its own supply. Workers only go to those warehouses. Then they deliver food to customers. So GoPuff's growth is incumbent upon them opening up a lot of these warehouses around the country. And that's what they're planning to do uh, over the next year. And so how does this work? GoPuff actually owns the products that it's selling? Yeah, GoPuff is like a retailer. They they buy products either from suppliers or wholesalers, takes them into their warehouses, and customers can go on the GoPuff app and say, like, I want, you know, a pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And uh, they are assured that GoPuff actually has that pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream um, that they want to order because GoPuff knows that they have it because they own it. And as they've grown, have they been able to keep up with their 30 minutes or less promise? For the most part, um, it's interesting. You know, their brand is definitely built on this idea of we get stuff to you really quickly. That is a valuable promise to give customers. That's obviously a, a general premise that Amazon has been built on, you know, uh, one to two day delivery that really unlocked a ton of their growth. 
GoPuff is saying, we'll get you stuff within 30 minutes. Um, and from some data that I saw um, from an internal company presentation, they, they mostly hit that goal. The, the one thing I thought was interesting was about 10% of the time, at least as of December, um, those deliveries are 50 minutes thereabouts. And that's something that GoPuff said, like, we need to get that down to like 42 minutes. So those are the kind of metrics that the company is, is looking at. The key for GoPuff is to increase the number of orders that each driver is delivering every hour. And that just means increasing the speed at which they get items out of the warehouse into drivers' hands, automating as much of the process as possible, anticipating what goods they're going to need to have in stock. And that's going to require a lot of like technology improvements. The one, you know, one interesting aspect of GoPuff is that they were born and founded in Philadelphia, not a historically a place where there's been a ton of technical talent. Now GoPuff is offering, you know, engineers from Uber, Airbnb, companies like that, you know, the ability to work in California or Seattle or wherever they want. And they're paying, they're paying up, you know, GoPub right now is in the stage of, we really need to make sure our technology is locked down so that we can deliver on this promise of, of rapid delivery. You talked to one driver who had interesting things to say about working for GoPuff. Yeah, like GoPuff, like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, there is a huge crunch for drivers right now. It is getting more expensive to recruit them. And, it, you know, drivers, in part because of stimulus checks and uh, a lot of other factors, are, you know, less likely to get on the road unless it's, it's going to be a good payday. And the driver that I spoke to, and I spoke to several drivers um, about this, they definitely see that GoPuff has a way to go as far as driver technology is concerned. So, you know, GoPuff, like all these delivery apps, they not only have a customer-facing app, but they have driver-facing apps. And drivers that I talk to who drive for multiple companies like Uber, like DoorDash, they say GoPuff is just way behind the curve. Another issue for GoPuff has been its name, which I can't imagine why. Some people say evokes marijuana. Uh, which we should say is not something GoPuff sells. But you learned when you, you were reporting this story that some investors actually urged the company to change its name. It does tie into, it almost seems like a silly issue. Like how much does a name like GoPuff really matter? You know, you've had a ton of funny names in tech over the years of companies that have been successful. You know, uh, I think my colleague Amir pointed out on Twitter that you know, Yahoo was a big success for a while, even though it had a name like Yahoo. But yeah, I think for GoPuff, the key is it's trying to move into the mainstream more. It delivers like cases of beer and natty ice and rolling papers. There was actually a headline um, in Philadelphia magazine from a few years ago that basically said like, you know, can GoPuff make a billion dollars delivering, uh, you know, hot Cheetos and rolling papers? Like that is, that was its Brand. It was the app for, you know, young, you know, sort of young, younger consumers. And GoPuff, obviously, there's that if that's what they're known for, that puts a limit on their potential valuation and their market cap. I'm, and so investors like SoftBank, which is one of the investors that have been plowing 
billions of dollars into GoPuff over the last couple of years. Um, there was the debate, like, should GoPuff change its name? Can we convince them to change their name? Um, GoPuff's founders have stuck by the name. They love the name. They think millennials really like it. Um, and, you know, but, but this has sort of continued to be something that's hung over the company. How can it expand its brand? How can it expand its customer base? Um, where they basically landed was essentially trying to run this new marketing campaign where GoPuff is supposed to connote magic rather than like rather than puff like a puff of marijuana or a puff of hookah or, or what have you. Uh, another possible worry for GoPuff and and for all its rivals is whether they will continue to be able to hire drivers as contractors, right? Uh, this week, uh, the new U.S. Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, said that maybe that the company should be required to bring these people on as full employees. It's a huge threat for all these companies. Um, you know, uh, Marty Walsh coming out and saying, I'm the new labor secretary and I have concerns about how the gig economy is really affecting inequality in this country. Um, that's a huge scare and it's a scaring investors already, at least in the companies that are publicly traded like DoorDash and Uber. And, you know, listen, these companies came off of a big win in California in November with Prop 22. Um, in GoPuff's case, they actually weren't even really operating in California until they bought this liquor store chain. And they announced that deal like the day after the election, after Prop 22 was passed. So, you know, their, their expansion, you know, really relies on places like California where now gig work has been essentially blessed. So, you know, these threats at the federal level are going to scare all these companies because the business model becomes less tenable um, if they have to bring on drivers as employees. You know, we're, we don't know quite how this is going to play out at the federal level yet, but it's definitely something to watch. Corey, this was a fascinating story and it's a really interesting industry. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening this week. Thank you to Wendy and Josh for coming on the 411. And thank you to Ariella Markowitz for producing this week's episode. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>